You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. What is that? One more time, but play it all the way through. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. I am pleased as punch to announce that we are now a part of Hub and Spoke Audio Collective. Hub and Spoke features compelling, highly produced, nonfiction, story-based podcasts like The Lonely Palette, Ministry of Ideas, and now The Constant. I'm thrilled to be joining their ranks. If you don't know the other Hub and Spoke shows, go check them out. There's a link to the website in the show notes. There's so much good content, and I think anybody who listens to this pod is guaranteed to love the rest of the catalog. I'll have more specific recommendations in episodes to come, but for now, yeah, just get them all. It's like Pokemon. Now let's hear that Sonic ID one more time and get on with the show. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. It's hard to find heroes when you're making a show about people screwing up. In that context, what even counts as a hero? Is it the people who provide us with errors and mistakes? People like Prosper René Blondlot, who gave us Enrays, or Franz Mesmer, or, heavens forfend, Aristotle? That hardly seems right. But the other obvious option is equally as fraught that the heroes of this show are the folks like Benjamin Franklin, Ignis Semmelweis, and Samuel Plimsoll, those who managed to pull us out of ignorance or died trying. But they're also the folks who are responsible for putting an end to our stories. They are, at heart, the enemies of this show's continued existence. So as much as I love and respect them, it hardly seems right to call them the show's heroes, exactly. I don't know. Maybe it's the wrong way to ask the question. Maybe the constant can have no heroes. But it does have at least one saint. And today, we're celebrating him. Because as I record this, it's nearly his saint's day. July 17th is the high holiday of the Church of Screw-Upology. And I think it's time we spread it to the world. So if you're listening to this in time, we've got some celebrating to do. And if you missed it, well, that's fine too. It's kind of the point, really. What makes July 17th so holy in the constant calendar? It's the anniversary of either one of the greatest adventures or misadventures of all time. It's hard to say for sure which, as I like it. It's been 81 years since a single-engine Curtis Robin took off from Floyd Bennett Field in Brooklyn on an amazing journey that captured the attention of people throughout the world. An amazing journey 
that was never supposed to happen. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's holiday devotional, the right stuff, the wrong way. There's no use trying to bury the lead on this one any further, so let's just get the basic facts out of the way right here, and then we can work our way back from the top. On July 17, 1938, Douglas Corrigan was supposed to be flying home to San Diego. He'd obtained a license for a transcontinental flight to New York and back, arriving in Brooklyn on July 10th. His flight plan had him returning to California on July 17th. He took off early that morning. The exact manner of his takeoff is an open question we'll get back to later. And then, well, let's let Corrigan explain things in his own words. Uh, Starting off from uh, New York uh, on Sunday morning, I started to fly to Los Angeles, but some way got turned around above the clouds. And uh, after about 26 hours of that, seeing nothing except clouds, I came down through the clouds. And uh, the country looked a little strange. Then when I found the biggest city I could see and found the airport, the first one I found, after landing there, they told me that I was in Dublin, Ireland. So I had to believe them. Let's break that down. Corrigan sets off in the morning, headed for San Diego. According to him, he ascends above some cloud cover, sets things into a cruise, and... 27 hours later, he descends to find himself in Dublin. Instead of flying 2,100 miles west, he accidentally flew 3,200 miles east. When he stepped out of his plane, he's alleged to have said, Just got in from New York. Where am I? As Saul of Tarsus became Paul, this was the moment that Corrigan was elevated in the church of getting things wrong, from the lowly Douglas to the sainted, wrong-way Corrigan. He was only the 11th person to fly solo across the Atlantic, and the first to fly from the U.S. to Ireland. A near-instant celebrity, he was greeted upon his return to New York with a ticker tape parade bigger than the one Charles Lindbergh had received in 1927. Then he got another in Buffalo, and another in Cincinnati, and another in Chicago, Milwaukee, St. Louis, San Antonio, and more before he finally completed his return trip to San Diego, several months later than anticipated. Those are the broad strokes. And hearing them, there's a natural thing that you're bound to wonder. How? How could someone have crossed the Atlantic in a cobbled-together jalopy in 1938 by accident? And then there's another question, born of that incredulity, that's bound to flow naturally from that one. It couldn't have really been an accident, right? And that is where we fall down the rabbit hole. When Wrong Way Corrigan was 18, he forked over $2.50 for a 10-minute flight on a Curtis Jenny in Los Angeles. From the moment the wheels left the ground, Corrigan was transformed. His dream of becoming an architect supplanted by dreams of flying. Neither aspiration seemed especially achievable. Before he was wrong way, he was Douglas. And before he was Douglas, he was Clyde. 
named for his father, a construction engineer in Galveston, Texas. Clyde Sr. ran out on the family when Clyde Jr. was still young, saying he couldn't stand having kids around. After he abandoned her and their three children, Clyde Jr.'s mother said she never wanted to hear that name again. And so Clyde became Douglas, after the actor Douglas Fairbanks. The family moved to Los Angeles, where his mother took up work as a teacher and boarder for wayward children. To help make ends meet, Douglas delivered newspapers. It was a barely tenable arrangement, and it went to pot when Mrs. Corrigan suddenly became very ill and died not long after Douglas's first sightseeing flight. He dropped out of high school to find work to support his younger brother and sister, but after his time in the air, he knew that work had to be with planes. He returned to the airfield every day. In the morning, he'd take a flying lesson. After that, he'd stick around to help the mechanics until the airstrip closed in the evening. He earned $11 a week, sending three to his sister, three to his brother, and giving three straight back to his employer for the flight lessons. When the owners of the school and tourist business folded up shop and moved to San Diego to open their own plane company, Corrigan followed them, going to work with the newly named Ryan Aeronautical. This was 1926, and the fledgling company got off to a rough start, with canceled order after canceled order, up until a young aviator from St. Louis called to ask if Ryan could build a plane that would fly from New York to Paris. Charles Lindbergh. Maybe the idea of following Lindbergh across the Atlantic started right there at Ryan, while he was helping to design and build the Spirit of St. Louis. Maybe it came later, when he was training pilots in California, or barnstorming in New York. I can't say for sure. But I can say that, whether he meant to do it that Sunday morning in Brooklyn or not, Corrigan had been thinking about making the crossing for a good long while before that. Ryan Aeronautical spent two months building the Spirit of St. Louis, and Douglas Corrigan was along for the whole task. He built the wing, installed the gas tank, assembled the instrument panel, with Charles Lindbergh frequently on site. When the news hit San Diego that Lindbergh had landed in Paris on May 20th, 1927, Corrigan and the rest of the crew jumped into their cars and onto their bikes, riding through the streets, wooing and screaming. The Spirit of St. Louis was now the most famous plane in the world by a long shot. The once beleaguered Ryan Aeronautical was suddenly in high demand and decided to relocate to St. Louis to make the connection all the more evident. Corrigan didn't follow. He wanted to be a pilot. But when he applied to an airline, he was told he'd need 500 hours of flight time before he'd be eligible. So he stayed in San Diego to finish his training, working as a mechanic for a new flight school called AirTech. Every day at AirTech, instead of eating lunch, he'd grab an hour in the sky, practicing aerobatics and tricks above the airfield until he was castigated for unsafe flying by the company. At which point, he started flying south towards the Mexican border, out of sight from his employers, where he could practice his loops and chandelles. When he finally got his 500 hours, he returned to the airline, who said that since his last application, the standard had changed. It was 1930, and airlines were beginning to offer transcontinental flights from Los Angeles to New York. If he wanted to pilot professionally, he'd need to get long-distance experience. So he left San Diego, moving to New York to barnstorm up and down the East Coast with a friend. They'd go from town to town offering airplane rides, just like the kind that had so enraptured Corrigan back when he was a teen. It was decent money when they found takers. Not so much when they didn't. It seemed there was no way he'd managed to become a commercial pilot. 
Without a plane of his own, there was no way to get the cross-country flying time now necessary. Then, in 1933, his absentee father died. Corrigan wrote that once, when he was a child, he was playing airplane in the house, and his dad told him he'd buy him a real airplane when he grew up if he just shut up now. Corrigan figured the small obligatory inheritance he received might as well be a make-good on that promise. He found a beat-up 1929 Curtis Robin, a small monoplane, and bought it for $325. With it, he began his transcontinental flight, returning to San Diego, stopping periodically to take on passengers when he could so he could make a little scratch. When he got back to California, he again returned to the airline. He had his license, he was way past 500 hours, and now he'd flown cross-country. He was ready to be a commercial pilot. No can do, said the airline. The qualifications had changed again. Air travel was becoming more professional, more stratified, and airlines were only taking pilots who had gone to college. Well, what about Lindbergh? asked Corrigan. He never went to college. Yes, but he crossed the Atlantic. If Corrigan hadn't already had the idea in 1927, or in the years of stunt flying on his lunch breaks, or his time barnstorming the eastern seaboard, or crossing the country in his rickety plane, he certainly had it now. He had to cross the Atlantic. It was the only way. He went back to work as a mechanic, but in his off hours, he began kitting out his $350 junker. He built out two smaller engines into one whopping new one with 165 horsepower. He plopped new gas tanks anywhere and everywhere he could put them. Until finally, he was ready to go. He named his creation Sunshine and applied to get it licensed for a nonstop flight from New York to Dublin. Absolutely not, said federal inspectors. So Corrigan kept working, and in 1936 again submitted Sunshine for inspection. This time, the Federal Bureau of Air Commerce said he couldn't make the flight without a radio operator's license. Sunshine didn't have a radio, and that was fine, but Corrigan needed the license nonetheless. The next year, 1937, Corrigan got his radio license, and once more asked permission to fly to Ireland. Between the last inspection and this one, several things had changed. For one, Amelia Earhart had gone missing. For another, Corrigan had soldered two more gas tanks to Sunshine, which sat on the nose of the plane, obstructing the view from the cockpit, so that Corrigan had to tilt his head to the side and squint through the secondary window. This time, not only did they refuse to certify the transoceanic flight, they grounded Sunshine completely. Corrigan flew anyway. He left San Diego, headed for New York, without permission. But that was fine. It's not like anybody could pull him out of the sky. Except the weather. It stormed almost constantly from the time Corrigan left California. He had to make emergency landing after emergency landing in New Mexico, in Arkansas, in Kentucky, in West Virginia, twice in Texas. Altogether, the trip to New York took him nine days. It was the end of October, too cold and too stormy to risk flying over the ocean. So he turned around, tried to make it back to San Diego in a single trip. That didn't work out either. The freezing and the weather and the winds conspired against him. He fought, though. He wrote that at one point over Mississippi, the air was so cold that ice started crystallizing on his throttle controls, so that he had to swing the lever open and closed over and over again to break it up, while sunshine surged and jerked in midair. He nearly made it to San Diego in one jump. 
but ran out of fuel and had to stop in the San Fernando Valley. There, Sunshine was confiscated and grounded for real this time. It took him months to get his plane back, but he was finally able to get her approved for an experimental license. Definitely not the sort of thing you could cross the Atlantic on. But he could make one more transcontinental flight, from San Diego to New York and back again. So that's what he would do. Just a quick touchdown and back home. No funny stuff. After all, if there was one thing you could count on Douglas Corrigan to do, it was follow the rules. The Constant is brought to you by Full Stack Academy. In 2003, 8,500 patients suddenly dropped dead at St. Mary's Mercy Medical Center in Grand Rapids, Michigan. The cause? A coding error. Luckily, the fatalities only existed in the Mercy Medical Computer Network, so everybody was physically unharmed. But the network sent alerts of all these deaths to the Social Security office, meaning that the cyber-afflicted had to brave a Kafkaesque gauntlet of unresponsive bureaucracy in order to prove that they were, in fact, alive. This never would have happened if the folks running Mercy's system had gone to Full Stack Academy. Full Stack is one of the longest-running coding boot camps in the country, with alumni going on to work for Google, Jellyvision, and J.P. Morgan. They teach cutting-edge software engineering skills with hands-on training right here in Chicago at far less than the cost of going back to school. And Full Stack is making it even more affordable by giving the constant listeners an additional $500 off tuition for any cohorts through April 2020. Head to fullstackacademy.com constant and get $500 off. Again, that's fullstackacademy.com slash constant for $500 off your Full Stack Academy tuition. Full Stack Academy Chicago. Get coding, get hired. And by BetterHelp. If you're struggling with any of life's many challenges, BetterHelp is available anytime, anywhere to give you a hand. They'll connect you with a professional counselor in a safe, private, online environment where you can get help on your own time, at your own pace, and through whatever means work best for you. Text, chat, phone, or video. BetterHelp has counselors that focus on any number of common issues, including depression, anxiety, grief, self-esteem, sleep problems, and relationship troubles. Your sessions are secure, convenient, professional, and best of all, affordable. Constant listeners get 10% off their first month with discount code THECONSTANT. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash the constant. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash the constant. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. 
Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. On July 7th, 1938, Douglas Corrigan left California out of Long Beach en route to Roosevelt Field in New York, right where Charles Lindbergh had taken off in the plane Corrigan had helped to build. He'd learned from his last journey that he'd need the weather at his back, so he tracked legendary aviator and weirdo Howard Hughes in the papers, using his travel and flight plans to secure his own. From Roosevelt, he puddle-hopped to Floyd Bennett Field to gas up for his wink-wink-nudge-nudge return trip to San Diego. He spun up Sunshine's propeller himself at 4 in the morning on July 17, 1938. This is our faded flight, so let's return again to the question of his takeoff. On every other point of his story, Douglas Corrigan remained entirely consistent for the rest of his life, except for the bit about the takeoff. He said he took off to the west, but got turned around in dense fog. But he also said that he took off to the east in order to burn fuel and get extra altitude before turning around. But he also, also said that he was told by Kenneth Baer, the manager of the airfield, to take off to the east so as not to wake him up so early. However it is that he got facing east, he claimed not to know it. The cloud cover was thick and his compass malfunctioned. I know, I know. You've got to roll your eyes at the idea that this was an accident. But there are a couple of admittedly thin pieces of evidence to support the otherwise outlandish notion that Corrigan made the flight by accident. He wasn't provisioned for a flight across the Atlantic. He didn't even have food or water aside from two boxes of fig cookies and a chocolate bar. And the only map in Sunshine was of the continental U.S. with his New York to San Diego flight plan dotted out upon it. Maybe the best reason to believe Corrigan's story has to do with the trip that got him to New York in the first place. He'd made it to Roosevelt Field with only four gallons of gasoline left. The flight from New York to Dublin was a thousand miles longer. How could he have expected to make it? During that first flight, one of the tanks sprung a small leak that trickled gasoline into the cockpit, but Corrigan hadn't bothered to properly fix it. Did that mean he didn't think it was a big deal, since he'd be flying a shorter run over dry land? Or did it mean that he thought if he took the time to fix it, somebody would get wise and shut down his secret agenda? Either way, ten hours over the Atlantic, the problem popped up again. Corrigan noticed his feet going cold and his brain getting dizzy, and realized he was sitting in an increasingly large puddle of gasoline. Not only was he losing fuel and getting high, but there was the exhaust pipe at the back of the cabin to worry about. If the stream of gas made its way back there, sunshine would finally look like its namesake, a flaming ball cutting across the sky and disappearing into night. Since Corrigan supposedly thought he was over Ohio at this point, you'd think he would have descended below the cloud cover to find a landing spot, only to discover he was smack in the middle of the ocean. But nope. Instead, he tipped sunshine to the left, away from the exhaust pipe, and started stabbing holes in the bottom of the cockpit with a screwdriver until he'd gotten the gas to drain out. Then he sped up, running the plane's engine hot to try to beat the ticking clock of his fuel reserves. 
Corrigan always maintained that he didn't figure out he was flying east until around 26 hours in, at which point it was way too late to turn back. He was only two hours away from Ireland. Naturally, he had to keep on, even though he didn't have a license. Or a visa. Or a passport. What choice did he have? When he landed at Baldonnell Airport in Dublin and gave his gee golly shucks line, just got in from New York, where am I? The officials there already knew who he was. When Corrigan went missing from the continental US, the papers ran stories about a pilot lost over the Atlantic. One of his associates, maybe that manager back at the airstrip in Brooklyn, leaked the possibility that he was on his way to Ireland. A couple of hours before his landing, people in Belfast had reported a plane with American markings on the wings flying overhead. The Irish custom officials who interrogated Corrigan were suspicious of him and his story, but it was the aviation officials who were downright incredulous. Looking over Sunshine, they simply couldn't believe that anyone would try to cross an ocean in it, let alone that someone could succeed. The door was held shut with bailing wire. The floor was stabbed through with a screwdriver. The engine was cobbled together from what appeared to be two pretty crummy ones. The nose and hood were soldered from God knows how many pieces of random sheet metal. A reporter said it looked like Sunshine was one big patchwork quilt stretched over an old soapbox with a pair of roller skates nailed to it. Between the illegal entry to a sovereign nation without a passport, the flying in an unlicensed plane without authorization, and the numerous safety code violations, the telegraph dictating them for the Americans went on for 600 words, Corrigan could have been in several varieties of big trouble. Lucky for him... He was a celebrity now. The media had caught on to Corrigan's landing almost the minute his wheels touched the ground. Reporters swarmed him, dozens of telegrams poured in, including from Henry Ford and Howard Hughes himself. The next day, Corrigan's story was on the front page of every newspaper in America, Ireland, and the world, including what has to be the single greatest headline in press history from the New York Post which read, Hail Wrong Way Corrigan, but with the text mirrored backwards. He was taken to meet the Irish Prime Minister, to whom he apologized for the trouble. The PM replied, That's all right, your flight put Ireland on the map again. In the end, both Corrigan and Sunshine's licenses were suspended. For eight weeks. Just long enough for the two of them to make the cruise back to New York. Then came the ticker tape parades, the slow victory tour back west to California. At every city he passed through, thousands of people flocked to get a look at Wrongway Corrigan and his miracle heap, Sunshine. Sometimes, they'd even take to the sky and do a few tricks. The opportunities came rolling in. He was featured on the television show To Tell the Truth. By December, his autobiography, That's My Story, was on shelves and off of them again. It went through at least 20 printings. The next year, his story was turned into a movie for RKO Pictures, entitled The Flying Irishman. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? Today, the Transcontinental Network is happy to be able to bring you the details of the official reception to the latest daring airman to capture the fancy of the entire world. We're speaking to you now from San Antonio Municipal Airport. A great crowd is assembled here this afternoon, and with eyes in the sky... It features a very awkward Corrigan himself in the lead role, surrounded by professional character actors who appear to be holding his hand through the entire shoot. It also features, allow me the digression, this truly bonkers fictional B-plot that takes up almost half of Act 2, 
about a shell-shocked World War I pilot turned mechanic. Why don't you do any flying around here? Well, you see, I, I got hit a couple of times over there. Cracked up twice. Guess it doesn't do a fellow's nerves any good. All these peewee civilian flyers around here think I'm a little cuckoo. You know, shell shock. Who butts heads with all the namby-pamby flyboys who don't understand the true spirit of flight. What a thrill you'll get with that guy at the controls. About as exciting as a quilting party in an old lady's home. Yeah? Well, I always figured the biggest thrill is coming on right side up. Kick it over, Tootsie. About halfway through the film, a doctor inexplicably shows up in the hangar to tell him that if he ever flies again, his heart will explode. Maybe it was the drink I took. I've never had any trouble with my heart. Sure, it was that drink I took. And I got a little gas, and I guess I got upset. Took more than a little drink to do this. Your heart's beating to the tune of about 10,000 highballs. Sorry, Brendan, I can't pass you. Oh, but you've got to, Doc. You can't ground me. So naturally, he starts punching out everybody in sight. Now take my advice. Shut up! Before stealing a plane. What's the trouble? I don't know. I do. Bush just failed his physical examination. That'll be the last time he'll ever pilot a plane. Doing a bunch of tricks, passing out behind the stick, and careening to Earth in a mighty fireball. Corrigan and pals stare somberly, but briefly, at the wreckage. The camera fades to black. And none of this is ever mentioned again. It is wild. Anyway, the most fascinating part about both the book and the film are the way they both awkwardly shift gears in their third acts. What made the story of Rongway Corrigan so sensational and delicious was his struggle against bureaucratic systems to do what he wanted and the audacity he'd shown in finally taking his goal. Yet, in every telling, once he's fought his way over and over again to Floyd Bennett Field, the thin ruse of the accident takes over. It doesn't seem like anyone ever really believed that his famous journey was truly a mistake, yet everybody smirkingly pretended it was. Most of all that went for Corrigan himself, who poker-faced the incident for 50 years. I've read in several places that late in life he finally came clean, but I can't find any first-hand evidence of that. It seems that after the roar of attention and adulation died down, Wrongway Corrigan slowly slipped into seclusion. In 1950, he retired and bought an orange grove in Santa Ana, where he lived out the rest of his days with his wife and family. In 1972, his eldest son died in a plane crash near Santa Catalina Island, and Wrongway Corrigan receded entirely from the public world. The closest thing I can find to him admitting that he'd made the 1938 flight on purpose is in a news video from 1988, the 50th anniversary of the crossing. Some aviation enthusiasts put together a festival in his honor and even rebuilt sunshine for him to sit in, though you can see in the footage that they've tied the plane to the ground for fear that he might get a wild hair about flying it again. When interviewed by the local press, he maintained that the whole thing had been a mistake, a misunderstanding. But then, with his sly smile, he begins describing the way federal investigators had stood in his way time and time again. Well, the last thing he said was, get lost. <laughs> well, two years later, I got lost. 
<laughs> so I did just what the government told me to do. <laughs> it's not my fault. Hard to call that an admission, let alone a confession. But as always, everybody who wanted to understood what he was saying. Let's shoot back to 1929, at the height of the wrong way sensation. Douglas Corrigan had a book, he had a movie. He had money, he had fame. Now there was just one thing left to get. A job. The airlines came tripping over themselves. One offered to put him in charge of their flight operations. Another said they'd make him vice president. But Corgan didn't want any of that. He'd gotten his licenses. He'd done his 500 hours. He'd flown across the United States. And finally, he'd shot the Atlantic, just like Charles Lindbergh. Now it was time. He wanted to be a commercial pilot. The airlines hemmed and hawed. What was the problem? He was an honest-to-God celebrity now. Who wouldn't want to fly with Wrongway Corrigan, he asked. And the bosses all replied, people who want to get where they're going. That's the button. But stick with me for a couple more minutes, please. I've got a weird little brain. It drives my wife crazy. I can remember all this trivial stuff that ends up being stories for this show, but I can't keep a hold of regular day-to-day things that happen in my actual life. And that includes usually not being able to recall how or when or from where I learned the story stuff in the first place. But I remember how I first learned about Wrongway Corrigan explicitly. Through Danny Thompson. Danny Thompson was a co-founder of Theater Ublek, the best American theater company of the last 30 years. Fight me about it. He was an incredible writer, performer, actor, and everything. He was an endless font of knowledge and trivia and joy and mirth, a reckless intellectual, an epicurean of the highest order who reveled in knowledge and food and every growing thing. Last year, Danny wrote up a little Facebook post about the 80th anniversary of Wrongway Corrigan's transatlantic flight. And it was so delightful and charming and hilarious that I dropped the episode I was then working on and started writing this instead. But compared to what Danny had said, my take was so boring and lifeless by comparison that I dropped it. I'll do it next year, I thought, and I'll have time to interview Danny to get it just right. But we lost Danny Thompson on May 20th to a freak genetic condition. I say we... And it sounds like I was close to him, but I wasn't. I saw him perform probably less than 10 times. Had barely qualifying his conversations, conversations with him, no more than five. So when I say we lost Danny Thompson, the we I'm referring to is everybody who loves a good story. Everybody who likes to take a bit of history or science and roll it over their tongue for a while. Who enjoys turning myth and politics and philosophy on their heads dropping them into a centrifuge and shaking the whole mess into one beautiful, ridiculous, kaleidoscopic hole. When I say we lost Danny Thompson, the we I'm referring to is all of us who can see the sublime, comic beauty of a charmed, smirking prankster winning over the world with a lie so wonderful that no one could ever believe it and no one could ever give it up. This story would have been better if Danny had told it. So here's my suggestion. 
in honor both of Douglas Corrigan and Danny Thompson, two high saints of the constant, if there ever were any, we mark this high holiday wrong way day. And if you're a couple days late, that's no matter. It's in keeping with the spirit of the thing. I'm going to call wrong way day a day to live ridiculously and to take from this world precisely what you want by accident or otherwise. Music for today's episode by Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Rosevear, and Kevin McLeod. Special thanks go out to all the Patreon supporters, especially Killian Perry, Donald Mundus, Peter Oliphant, and Joe Squires. If you'd like to join their ranks, go to patreon.com slash theconstant and become a supporter of the show right now. Find us online at constantpodcast.com. From there, you can then find our Facebook and Twitter pages and our Instagram, lovingly maintained by the incomparable Heather Chrysler. Until next time, which will be, holy smokes, our 50th episode. Wow. Uh, I guess I'd better come up with something cool for that. All right. Uh, no pressure. See you in two weeks. From Chicago, Illinois, this has been The Constant. His name was Charles Lindbergh. And he was a Nazi. <laughs> I feel... I, it's just, there's just no place for it in this story. But Charles Lindbergh inspired the Nazis. And that seems like something we should probably talk about at some point. I mean, is that common knowledge? It seems like it should be common knowledge. I'm afraid it's not common knowledge. So I just want to say, Charles Lindbergh, Nazis. Okay.